0: I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate.
1: The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership.
0: I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of
1: the United Welcome to the
0: Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. My name is Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena, and today we interview U.S. Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii. Uh, Senator Schatz is one of the youngest senators uh, in the U.S. Senate and has been particularly prominent lately in pushing back against the Trump administration's policies. Let's jump in. Senator Brian Schatz, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Thanks for having me. Senator, we're having this conversation on the anniversary of September 11th. Where were you on 9 11
1: I was in the state legislature in Hawaii at the time. We got the news. I think my mother called me, uh, obviously, early in the morning when it was still dark to tell me what was happening, and we flipped on the TV, and and um, so we were 5,000 miles away.
0: Yeah, and what was the experience being an elected official uh, during such a confusing time?
1: Well, the first couple of days, we were trying to figure out what was going on and what else was going to happen, and you know, interestingly, if you're an elected official with responsibility for state issues, you know, it was a different set of objectives because you had the federal legislature and executive branch and um, homeland. Well, not not at that time the Homeland Security Department, but our Homeland Security agencies dealing with keeping everybody safe. But if you're in the Hawaii legislature, you're uh, primarily focused on taking care of the people of Hawaii. So that that had to do with making sure we were secure, but also understanding what was likely to happen to the economy in Hawaii that depended on air travel, tourism, uh, and that kind of transportation infrastructure. So we immediately went into a special session and adopted legislation to try to make sure we stabilized our economy in the context of of, the, of this great human tragedy, but it was, you know, I was, I was quite young at the time and, um, uh, it was, uh, it was, a, it, it was an awful, uh, period uh, for the country. And, uh, we have people from Hawaii who perished in the, in the twin towers. And I think about
0: them, uh, uh every September 11th. And, you know, you mentioned that you were quite young back then. Uh, how old were you when you ran for office for the first time?
1: So I was 25 years old. I had been running a not-for-profit organization, a, a, an environmental nonprofit, and uh, I, uh, you know, I had expressed some frustration to uh, members of my family about the lack of responsiveness among uh, people in the Hawaii legislature. And actually, it was my dad who said, "Well, why don't you run for office?" And I said, "Well, you know, because I'm 25 years old, you can't run for office when you're 25." And you know, uh, then I learned that. A lot of people run for office at a pretty young age, uh, including people uh, who were elected to the Hawaii legislature. And so I thought about it and I left my nonprofit and um, met a person who had been elected a couple of times uh, in the same uh, district. And he told me that the only way that I would win was shoe leather. Um, I just had to walk door to door and knock on every door as many times as I could possibly uh, do it. And so that's what I do. I just, uh, I, I, that's what I did. I just uh, put on uh, some, some comfortable shoes and started walking house to house, not really knowing what I was doing, but sort of by the end of the process, you know, I had knocked on every door uh, uh, four times uh, in the neighborhood to the point where even those who were voting for me
0: wanted me to stop. Yeah. Now, given how young you were, did, were there a lot of people who tried to talk you out of running back then?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, You know, I think um, uh, and I, you know, I looked younger than I was. uh, And now that's a good thing for me now that I'm 44 and have a teenage son and all the rest of it. When people say you don't look like a senator, I take that as a compliment. But when you're 25 years old and you look, you know, 19 or 20 and you want to represent uh, a community in the state legislature, it's a it's quite a challenge. But, you know, uh, part of what what I learned through that process is that um, being personally connected to your voters, understanding their needs and showing the humility required um, to ask for the vote and to understand that as an old friend of mine said, you know, people vote for you for their reasons, not yours. Um, So you may have, you know, four or five things that you think are a high priority or four or five things that you think make you uh, more qualified than the next guy. But But the process of actually listening to voters um, causes you to recalibrate and become a better leader. And so, although obviously when you're running statewide, you you can't have that level of connectivity. You can't knock on every door. You know, whether you're doing it through town halls or nowadays through social media, um, I try to remember that um, polling can be important media can be important. But the most important thing is to have an instinct for who your constituents are and what they prioritize.
0: Senator, you uh, mentioned your father. And, you know, in reading about your father, it seems like he was committed to social justice as well. And and he called attention to the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. Tell us more about that.
1: The Tuskegee experiments, very simply put, were were conducted by the U.S. Public Health Service. And what they did was uh, they knew that penicillin uh uh cured syphilis um but what they did was they conducted an experiment where they where they gave uh a, a group of african american men penicillin and then gave another group of african american men uh placebo uh in order to quote unquote observe the disease process uh and they used these uh americans these humans uh for their own scientific research even though they could have cured their disease. Uh, my dad read about this uh, in a medical journal and was shockingly the only doctor at the time who went on the record uh, in opposition uh, to this. And you know, this wasn't 1940. This is 1969, I believe, was when the the um, uh, study was conducted. And you know, later uh, people found out more and more about it. Tom Harkin and others in the United States Senate uh, ended up passing a statute that prohibited you know, any federal agency, actually any uh, anyone who conducts research from from doing what they did, which is to withhold medicine that they know to be curative. Uh, And so that changed standards for medical research and humanity and ethics uh, in the medical uh, field. Uh, And what I um, took from that was not just his fundamental decency, which I knew about, but that I didn't even know he had done this until I was about, I don't know, 28, 29, 30. Um, he was being honored uh, by Mayo, the Mayo Clinic. And and I asked him why. And then he, ha- he was sort of forced to tell me the story. But it strikes me that you could scarcely find anybody in public life or in public service nowadays who could have done something so important, so deeply moral um, uh, and, and not sort of make sure everybody knew about it uh, incessantly from then on. I mean, he just did the right thing and then he moved on with his life. And he didn't even think to use it as an opportunity to instruct his kids on on how to be because I think he knew that the uh the example of his hard work and his humility and his morality was going to shine through and he didn't have to uh, you know sort of give a speech about it every morning. I try to remember that now as a dad, but also as a public servant that, you know, some of the things that you do um, no one will know about. And some of the things that you get credit for, you know, uh, you, you may not deserve total credit for. That's just sort of the nature of life. And you have to be prepared to, to, to understand that the accounting that happens at the end of your life on whether or not you were a good public servant is a deeper accounting than how it gets characterized either by your voters or by the media or even by your family. Um, It's for you to sort out uh, 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 whether you did the right thing. And I I, I try to stay true to that even though I'm in a business where it's sort of necessary that people know that I'm doing good stuff, at least periodically, so so that I can stay in the office to do more good stuff.
0: And Senator, speaking of doing important work, you have recently put forward a policy to uh, allow consumer access to purchase into Medicaid. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that policy and uh, what the path forward is for it?
1: So this is this is what we're calling a Medicaid public option. Um, Medicaid is, generally speaking, thought of as a program for people who don't have enough money for health care. You know, Medicare, of course, is for the elderly. Um, uh, Bernie Sanders and others are working on Medicare for All, which I think is a is an idea worth exploring. Uh, I am looking at Medicaid for all or Medicaid for anyone who wants to buy into it. And without getting too sort of wonky about it, think of it as a consumer. If you are an, if you're on the individual market and you go onto the healthcare exchange, right now you can shop Kaiser, you can uh, shop, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield. You've got a few other options depending on where you live. I want Medicaid to be one of those options on the exchange. And I want Medicaid to be eligible for the the premium tax credits that ACA provides and all of the protection, the consumer protections that exist under ACA. So, for instance, you can't pay more than nine and a half percent of your total household income for health care under ACA. That's just a cap. And that's a great consumer protection. Um, Also, you have a bunch of things that are called essential health benefits that are required to be included in any health insurance plan. So it's stuff like pregnancy, hospitalization, mental health, all the kinds of things that you think would be mandatory in health insurance. Before ACA, people could offer you something that sounded like health insurance but literally didn't cover things that mattered, like pregnancy, like hospitalization, like ambulance uh, like uh, mental health. Um, uh, it was just absurd. So now we're saying there should be, not now, but under ACA, there are some minimum standards for these healthcare plans. I think Medicaid should compete with these private sector options. Um, I don't think that it should necessarily uh, uh, replace uh, the private insurance market, but I think what will happen is that uh, the private insurance market will will be faced with some pretty stiff competition because Medicaid, people like Medicaid. Uh, it is an efficient program. The benefit package is pretty good. Uh, and uh, relatively speaking, it's efficiently done in terms of the fiscal impact to the Treasury. So um, uh, we're excited about it. We have a number of uh, co sponsors, and we're going to roll it out in the next couple of weeks. I'll just make one broader point about healthcare and politics. You know, it's only in healthcare uh, where If you are not for a single payer, you are immediately a sellout. It is only in healthcare where uh, in which, you know, everything becomes a litmus test about your progressive purity. And I think that's nuts. For instance, everybody knows I'm a climate hawk, you know, and I'm for a carbon tax. But if someone came to me and said, hey, I want to increase the um, investment tax credit for solar and wind, Um, I want to make it easier for people who are doing solar on their roof to plug into the grid and get a power purchase agreement. Um, I wouldn't say, hey, nothing you do matters unless you're for my carbon fee. You know, um, in all other areas, or if I'm pushing for peace, um, there are ways to counter violent extremism. There are ways to uh, reduce uh, inappropriate defense spending. Uh, and in every other space where we have a progressive priority, LGBT issues, women's issues, we are willing to, in the context of Republican rule, you know, take what we can get legislatively and, and pocket some wins. In healthcare, care, I think partly because of the presidential campaign last year, it became so polarized that you weren't even allowed to have a good idea on health care, um, lest you be some sort of creation from some neocon think tank. And so, what I'm trying to do is just get it uh, to the point where Democrats can have a bunch of different progressive ideas. Uh, they can be complementary, they can be overlapping, and they can be competing. And then we can have some hearings and figure out which ones of these ideas are the best, uh, the most uh, practicable in the short run, and the most likely to happen. So, um, you know, of course, I like my idea the best. But as as a, as a famous boxer used to say everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And I think, um, you know, everybody's got the best idea until you have a hearing. And then you get a bunch of experts to tell you why you you wrote the legislative language wrong, or you may not have thought of something. I'm open to um, a proper legislative process where we take three, four, five good progressive ideas, maybe even three, four, five moderate or conservative ideas, and see what uh, shakes out as uh, the idea that we could First of all, we can do,
0: uh, and second of all, is most likely to result in low costs and increased coverage. Is that is there an appetite for that kind of conversation on the other side of the aisle? There is. Uh,
1: you know, they're exhausted. The Republicans are exhausted now. It's their fault, right? Because they were promising to uh, repeal uh, the Affordable Care Act, and they they, they, they there's sort of two categories. Uh, maybe two or three, some of them just didn't know how ridiculously hard it was. Um, Some of them knew and didn't care, Uh, uh, you know, and um, and some of them just got elected. But regardless, now they're stuck and they've got this untenable promise where they basically promised to do an abstract thing, which was repeal and replace Obamacare. And then suddenly people found out that that abstract thing was actually reducing Medicaid uh, 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 funding uh, and harming lots of the individuals that voted for them. So they're stuck and they're exhausted. Uh, they know that this sucked all the oxygen out of the air for any kind of adult conversation about how to improve health care, let alone, you know, the rest of the legislative agenda of the Republicans. So they're actually not all of them, but there are a bunch of them who are happy that there's now you know there are bipartisan working groups. Um, there are hearings There are adult conversations about health care, how this shakes out in terms of all these Republicans who um, who say they you know, they say they want to repeal and replace Obamacare, but they also say they like, you know, what everybody now knows is called the regular order. In other words, having hearings, doing this stuff in public, working on a bipartisan basis. I don't I can't predict the politics of this, but I will tell you that the appetite for doing real legislative work, um, is higher than, you know, any of my five years in the Senate.
0: And, you know, you know on the on the left, in the center, people kind of breathe, breathe a sigh of relief when the past efforts to repeal Obamacare appeared to, to fail. But it seems like the repeal is still alive. Uh, is that your sense? Uh, I think it's alive until the end of the month. The
1: way the sort of uh, idiosyncratic uh, process in the Senate works is that they have this uh, this budget vehicle which expires on September 30th. And um, so they have a theoretical uh, opportunity to try to take one last swing at it. And I would say, you know, nothing is impossible with this Congress and these Republicans. My instinct, however, is that The president himself wants to move on from this conversation. He never much cared uh, about what happened with health care. He just used it as a device to 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 get votes. And he really wants to do tax cuts for the wealthy. That's and so does Paul Ryan. So my instinct is that there's there's some risk here on ACA. There's more risk that they're going to use this budget reconciliation vehicle to try to jam a tax cut through in the next uh, three weeks And do you believe that's going to be successful? No, but, um, I have gotten out of the prediction game, uh, uh, after 2016, I don't think they will succeed. I think uh, McConnell has very little appetite for doing, uh, crazy things in the next three weeks. I think he's unhappy with the president. And, um, and so, you know, one of the things I've been saying on Twitter is that we really do need a temporary, uh, 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 coalition of the same. We need some people who with whom we disagree on judges and climate and taxes and women's rights and LGBT rights, but at least believe in the rule of law and the operation of law and in regular order. And um, uh, what Mitch McConnell does, oftentimes uh, I object to at the moral and ideological level. And I even think he breaks some norms, but I don't think he breaks laws and I don't think he wants to break institutions. And so we may need to be aligned with him, not on questions of conscience, but on questions of there being three separate and co-equal branches of government and there being a proper way to, uh, to have those branches struggle against each other.
0: Yeah. And so when you say, you know, that's interesting because the, you know, for those of us who've been watching McConnell, it's a little bit puzzling, you know, for us, you know, It it, we definitely don't see a lot of evidence of of uh, law breaking or intention to do so. But the the institutional question is tough because, you know, critics would say that he's been um, slowly uh, eroding the norms of the Senate. Uh, But you seem to be a little bit more optimistic, at least in this narrow question um, with this unprecedentedly uh, unlawful president.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there are two ways And I just, just to be clear, I, you know, what, what, what they did with Gorsuch was, and Merrick Garland was, was an abomination, but nobody, I don't think anybody gets to call that illegal. Um, uh, what they did, uh, was outside of the bounds and resulted in, you know, such a decision of consequence being taken away, uh, from president Obama. So I don't want to excuse any of the things that Mitch McConnell has done. Uh, uh, which I object to. It's just that in this particular instance, I think he's as fed up and maybe more, uh, 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 with, with Donald Trump as, as the rest of us. And maybe for his own institutional reasons, maybe even, you know, uh, uh f- from the standpoint of being a Republican leader, I think he may actually view this in the long run to be damaging the Republican party's prospects for a generation. And I think that's the correct way to look at this. Um, so he may have his, just like I said, people vote for you for their reasons, not yours. Just because all of the reasons that he, that he is fed up with Trump are not the reasons that I am fed up with Trump doesn't matter because in this instance, we really do need the legislative branch and in some instances, the judicial branch to stand up and to uh, assert that we are a country of laws, not of men, that the um, executive branch is, of course, of course, led by the president of the United States, but it is not the executive branch is not a person The executive branch is a branch of government. And so uh, no doubt the president has extraordinary power, but he is not a king. And um, I believe that over the next couple of months, we're going to see indications that the mouse that is the legislature is going to begin to roar. I'll just give you one little example. The, um, the proposed budget cuts to the State Department um, are really reckless um, and um, and what happened was this subcommittee that funds the State Department on a bipartisan basis uh, didn't just fully fund the State Department and reject Rex Tillerson and McMulvaney's uh, Mulvaney's uh, proposal to eviscerate it. But we actually wrote legislative language on a bipartisan basis that, you know, criticizes the president's uh, proposal or I should say worldview around retreating from American leadership, from essential American leadership. As Madeleine Albright uh, calls us, we are still the indispensable nation. And I was proud to be part of that subcommittee vote where we reasserted ourselves uh, and made sure that everybody understands um, that on a bipartisan basis, we still believe in the State Department. We still believe in projecting American non-military power uh, and and projecting American values across the planet. So it's a little thing, but a lot of little things are adding up uh, to the point where uh, I am now confident that the legislative branch is um, is pushing back a bit. We're probably about 10% uh, uh, of the way there. We're really not doing enough. So I don't want to let my colleagues off the hook, but I think there's some reason to be hopeful that what is happening at the executive level is so egregious that even my adversaries in the legislative uh, uh, arena basically agree with me um, that uh, what the executive
0: branch is proposing just can't stand. And so, uh, Senator, it's a busy day out there, it's nine it's eleven. uh there's a constant stream of uh, issues that you have to deal with and, and you're also putting forward affirmative policy. So we wanna let you get back out there. I just wanna say thank you not only Uh, as a citizen. But my sister uh, is one of your constituents lives in Honolulu. So uh, shout out to her. But just thank you for joining us today. and, And good luck out there. And good luck with your Medicaid package.
1: Thanks. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate what you do. Thank you.